This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. Over the, the period of Ellerslie history, which uh, somewhere around 14 years, I've given a message on something like this a couple times. So uh, if you've been around a long time, we have some old fogies in here that have been around a long time, uh, you're going to recognize a thought or an idea that we've brought up, but certain thoughts I need to bring up almost weekly. Certain thoughts are sort of the monthly, bi-monthly, some are you know, twice a year summer, yearly, this is probably needs more often uh, because especially the continued pressure, we saw this during the 19, 19, what century am I in? Uh, 2020 uh, lockdowns. I, I've been teaching a lot about the, night, uh, the 20th century, so it is a little confusing for me. But uh, the, in, in 2020, we had a certain wave of social pressure that was very, very obvious, and some defied it and refused to put on a mask, for instance, and they refused to be cowed by this pressure system around them. And yet for all of us, it could be a worthy discussion to just sort of evaluate the inner man and how we engaged, because some of you would lose a job if you didn't handle certain things the right way. You would lose friends, you would lose family or the ability to engage with family if you didn't do things the way that was prescribed. And those types of moments are very normal in Christian history. They're not very normal for American Christians. And so in a sense, it's a warm up for us to recognize that the decisions we make for Christ in our conscience actually have repercussions that typically through history change lives. They are meant to, the ripple effect, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, I remember reading an Oswald Chambers statement about it, that when a rock falls into water, it creates ripples. I mean, we know that, right, through observation, whether we've studied it scientifically or not. We sort of get it. But when the rock of Christ enters our life, we really would like it to not create ripples, could you just sort of hit my life, change my life, and then not create the havoc around me? Could you just allow me to make this decision but not have my decision impact others around me? It's, it's a funny dynamic because we really don't want to create discomfort for other people. Have you ever had the, the speedboat effect where you're in your rowboat and the speedboat goes by? That guy is creating a ripple effect. And usually there's a little grumbling about the guy in the speedboat. Well, when you, as a Christian, you make your decisions, it's kind of like a speedboat. I know I had a message a few weeks ago called the evil speedboats. This is a good speedboat. Uh, and we're creating an impact on others. And technically, we wish we could tone it down a little because we don't want to draw a lot of attention. I, I've had seasons in my life where I'm very front and center socially, and I don't prefer those seasons. I don't want to have my name go viral for any reason, to be honest. I would rather have my name just sort of stay under wraps. I remember I did a Google search on my parents once, uh, and 
they were, they, there was one uh, time on, in all of Google that they were, and that was in my bio. Uh, and I was thinking, boy, what a life that would be. And I actually felt bad for them that I stuck them in my bio because to be hidden from view is far better, in my opinion, if, if you want my opinion on that, than to be public because when you're public, everyone has an opinion about it, right? And that's the ripple effect. The funny other side of that is God designed the truth to impact our life and to create a ripple. In fact, it's not truly the working process of the kingdom of heaven if it's not actually impacting the world around us. So even though we may not want that, when we finally just embrace it, that's the way this works. It makes it a lot easier. The sway of they. Isn't that a cool title, by the way? I sort of like it. Uh, they. Uh, you guys know they, right? Uh, they are saying, yeah, if, if you do this, they won't like it. Uh, and we've all joked about they. You, know, it doesn't, you don't have to be around very uh, long on earth to have a few jokes about they. Who's they? You know, that's the common question. And it's hard to put a face to they, but they are out there. And they have strong opinions. And they have a heavy-duty influence over our life the sway of they. The classic quotes about they. But what would they say? But they won't like it. But they won't approve. But they will never go for this. So now, oftentimes we usually have a chief they in our mind that does hold that position. Uh, oftentimes there can be a family member, like in the extended family or in the immediate family with their, their face is sort of there in the they position. Sometimes it's culturally where there's some loud mouth uh, on an issue. And so they, it just sort of lands sort of in that position and they're surrounded by a bunch of faceless people, but it's a group and it has power and it has a tremendous intimidating effect on our lives to the point where though you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through him, you'll keep your mouth shut. And even allow people to go to hell, lest you upset they. And that's part of the sway of they that is very interesting to analyze and to say, why in the world does they have any impact over my life? Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Matthew 15, 12, then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I can't tell you how many times I've been in this situation where someone comes to me and says, did you know that so-and-so was offended uh, because you gave a message on this? Or did you know that so-and-so walked out of your message when you said this? It sort of just goes with the territory, guys. I am a guy who likes to be liked. It's an instinctive quality. I don't know. Maybe that's everyone. All I know is I've only lived in one body. But I prefer for people to like me as opposed to be mad at me. Okay, that's, maybe there are some people out there like, oh, I love to be the guy that just sort of sticks mud in people's eye, you know? I don't know, I'm not that guy. I prefer to be liked. I, pre I would prefer to be popular than unpopular. I would prefer to be blessed with people's words and their thoughts than cursed. And yet I have been in the situation that by speaking the clear word of God, I have offended many people throughout my life. And that's not a comfortable position, but I recognize that it comes with the package. 
What should Jesus do? Should Jesus go seek forgiveness from that guy that he offended? The Pharisees were constantly offended by what Jesus did. John 9, 20 through 22. His parents answered them. So this is a man who has been healed by Jesus, who has then been brought uh, before the, the council, and they're trying to figure out what's going on here. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. Now, what's interesting is you know, if, you, if you don't skip ahead to the rest of this, you could say, you know, maybe they're telling the truth, but I actually know that they're lying right now because of what's about to be said. You see, they don't want to say what they know. They know that Jesus healed their son, but they don't want to say it out loud. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now, to us, being put out of the synagogue doesn't sound like that big of a deal. You know, it's like, oh, who cares? I'm, I've never been in the synagogue. Why would it matter if I was put out of the synagogue? This is the center of social religious life. This is to be ostracized from that which is mainstream, that which is popular, that which is easy, that which is comfortable. You are choosing a harder life, and I'll go into that more in just a second. John 12, 42 through 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, if we could have some kind of measurement system inside of us that could answer the question of, do we love the praise of men more than the praise of God? Or do we love the praise of God or the approval of God, the smile of God upon our life, more than the smile of man upon our life? The applause of man or the applause of God? Which one do we love more? And I wish there was some kind of metrics for measuring that because it's more of a blurry territory for us. But I think most of us, if not all of us, could acknowledge that we're extremely susceptible to the love or the praise or the applause of men. And we would really like to have it, at least to some measure, but to give that up, to gain the applause of God, what does that mean? And that's where many of us pause. We're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can I have both? Uh, that's like classic American Christianity right there. I, I, I would like both. Could I have God's approval and man's approval simultaneously? I mean, I just need to be artistic and creative with how I deliver my Christianity. And if the world will find it attractive, then maybe they'll be wooed to it. And so I could maybe have my cake and eat it too. But one of the things we've recognized about Christianity throughout the ages is that you have to make a choice in the center of your soul. It does not mean that, that every single person in the world is going to reject you. It just means you have to be willing for that to happen. You have to choose the love, the applause, the praise of God as higher. You have to say, that is my great reward. That is what I'm after. Well, you do know that to gain that, you will have to give up this. Every Olympian recognizes that they are putting a value on winning that gold. So to win that gold, they have to give up normal social behavior. If you're training all day long, you can't do what other people do. 
The same is true with Christianity. You're going after something. And to go after that, you have to be willing to give up something. What are we giving up? We're giving up one of the things is the praise of men. When you choose to walk with Jesus, you look odd. You immediately sort of get odd, strange, weird, funny smelling to people. And to be honest, that is hard for us. We want to look good, smell good, come off right, have the right hair, the right you know, clothes, the right walk, the right talk, the lingo. We want to look right to the world. It's a propensity that we all have. And yet, are we willing to let go of that to gain something greater? To be put out of the synagogue, it's more than the removal from the Jewish form of worship. I think for many of us, that's what it is. It's, it's simply, oh, well, they don't get to go to their normal church. It's sort of like, I put you out of Ellerslie. And then you're like, oh, well, go to a different church. It's not that, well, I'd like you to think it's a big deal. I mean, it would be a big deal to not be able to come here. Don't you think? Yeah, see, that would be a huge deal. But it's more than that. It was a removal from social standing. So if you had any position in society, that society was based on a socio-religious system. Judaism is not just religious, it's a religion that introduces itself into the culture. And so if you're removed from the synagogue, you're also removed from any standing position you would have. It's a removal from family and friends. So your family, in a sense, is going to stiff arm you now. Doesn't this remind you a little of the COVID stuff? It's like you're making choices. That was like a miniature version of this. It was a removal from buying and selling. Okay, now this is starting to hit a little closer to home, guys, don't you think? It's removal from normal protections and provisions of the society. So a mob can come and beat you up and no one's going to stop them. You don't have what you used to have. And so to give up the synagogue or participation in the synagogue is not a small thing. And so you're going to see people in first century Christianity making decisions. They know Jesus is the Christ, but they're not going to say it out loud because the risk of that is too great. And that's why the example of the apostles is so magnificent because they are going to choose just like Jesus. Jesus is going to be put out of the synagogue. Just like Jesus, they are going to follow him, no matter what it costs them. And that is an example that should ripple through history. Instead, it somehow has stalled to the point where we've remade it in our generations. Like, well, you don't have to be that extreme. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to have the world actually against you. You can try and work with the world. And yet that's not actually what the Bible teaches. So pressure. Now, many of us who have, if, if you grew up in the public school system at all, you understand peer pressure. And I think parents forget how strong peer pressure is. Uh, and they're just like, well, don't give in. Like, I remember Nancy Reagan coming out with just say no. It was like some campaign about drugs. And it sounds great on paper, guys. But it, you, you go to a public school and Nancy Reagan saying just say no means Zippo. When you have social uh, peer pressure in that school system, it, it controls you. It really does. I mean, I, I, I didn't do drugs and I didn't drink alcohol. It doesn't mean I didn't hold some in my hand to look cool, but I didn't like it. It made it really nice uh, for me that I thought it was disgusting, right? But wow, the pressure was so intense. I remember being at a party and holding a beer 
just because it looked cool and I didn't want people to think I didn't drink. Isn't that a, an odd thing? And so the way that we will contort and conform to look appeasing to the world is amazing. The links we will go to to not have the derision come our way is very high. So, but there are, I, I just on the screen broke out seven different pressure chambers that exist. So depending on what you're at, you could be in multiple of these at the same time, but political pressure. If you're in politics, it's all a pressure game. It's all a lever game. It's all, you know, if someone has something on you, they'll use it. They'll hold something. There are many secrets that have gone to the grave, but they were held over someone's head their entire political career. And that politician was steered by someone else who had something on them. And it is extreme pressure in politics. Uh, social pressure. Well, you know, that was the, the COVID uh, situation. You know, are you go, you know, the whole mask wearing thing, the, the whole uh, in, injection, uh, the vaccine thing. All of these, I mean, extreme pressure. If you're going to fit into society, there's a way that you need to do it. Peer pressure. Church pressure. What? I mean, we, we actually have church pressure too? That's what Pharisaism was. That's exactly what's going on in this, this scene that I was just reading. It is a religious pressure to behave a certain way. Family pressure. Parental pressure. I know those sound like the same, but they can be subtly different. You could be in a family, you know, of many, you know, relatives, all, and, and you have sort of an idea of how you're supposed to live. I, I mean, I had it at a very lower level, I would say, but in my family, you graduate from high school and you go to college. There is no exception to that, lest you mislead the younger cousins to think something different, that this is what we do as a family. We're a well-educated family. We've all gone to college with our degrees, and now, Eric, you're graduating. We know what you're going to do, right? I mean, it was weird. No one's saying it, but you feel it. You feel an expectation upon you. Financial pressure, need I say more? It, these things can control our behaviors. Our inner climate can be shaped by these things. Imagine if you were immune to all of these. You could take a pill and poof, they all disappeared. And there was no pressure that could actually work against you. Huh, that would be very interesting. You know, one of the things that I've pondered, because and I, I'm trying to remember if it was A.W. Tozier, I think it was, A.W. Tozier made a statement and he said, the gospel frees us from the tyranny of public approval. And if you could bottle whatever that is, the gospel frees us from the tyranny or the governmental control of approval, right? Well, these are all in that category. Imagine to understand just the thought, the inkling of a thought that the gospel could set you free from these pressure chambers, where these pressure chambers could still be there, but they have no influence over you. They don't shake and disturb your inner life. You're free. You're free in Christ to not be impacted in the way that everyone else around you is. So I don't know that these are perfect uh, enunciations of what the results of these all are because we could mix and match fairly easily. But I gave sort of an end, what happens in the life of a human when you give way to these pressures. So political pressure leads to corruption. 
Social pressure leads to duplicity or hypocrisy. There's two of you. In other words, when you're around your family, you behave this way. When you're around your church, you behave this way. When you're around your friends, you behave totally different. Okay, that's duplicity, like a doubling of your life. Peer pressure leads to promiscuity, a, a, moral, a lack of moral boundary where your morals are really getting in the way of you fitting in. And so you have to lessen those to actually make it. So that's a violation of your moral code, promiscuity. Church pressure, Pharisaism, where you begin to put on an act spiritually or religiously, where it's actually hollow. As Jesus says, they're whitewashed tombs. They're, on the outside, they're, they're nice looking, but on the inside, there's death. And that's what can happen in a church situation where you could go to church, you could you know, nod along, you could know your doctrine and be dead on the inside. That's, that's a weird system. Family pressure, we could call it men-pleasing, where you want everyone in your family to just be fine with you. You want to make sure you get their nod, you get their approval. Parental pressure, compromise. That's a, that's a funny statement because aren't parents pressuring you to do what is right and moral? Sometimes. But also, some of us, when we come to Christ and we come from an ungodly family or parents that do not fear the Lord, they want to put a brake system on our yieldedness to Jesus. And so to appease that side of our life, which is a very big part of our life called our parents, we will oftentimes compromise in what God is asking us to do, lest we offend these people we love. Financial pressure. Anxiety. So the fixation of the soul. Now, I, I wish we could take each one of these and sort of unpack them individually for all of us because so much of this is a personalization of this message and how this is impacting us. But if you're in politics, you know, the, what will they think? I mean, that's like politics in a nutshell. And it's the voters, but it's also those cronies around you. You know, every uh, movie, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, one of my, one of my favorite movies, a Jimmy Stewart movie. You know, it's everything is about what they will think. There's all these uh, subgroups that have opinion, whether it's, you know, the, this coalition of, uh, of wealthy people that controls, you know, the media, whether it's, you know, that your party that you are with, there's certain things you're just not allowed to do. And that's what I love about me, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I said, meet Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We have a book called Meet Mr. Smith. And then it's, there's a book, then there's a movie called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. They are not the same thing. Uh, so lest I confuse you. But it's all about what others think. If you want to get reelected, you're trying to answer the question, what will they say? How will they vote if I do this, if I say this? What a miserable way to live. I don't want to live that way. Social pressure, what will they think? Peer pressure, what will they think? Church pressure, what will they think? Family pressure, what will they think? Parental pressure, what will they think? Financial pressure, what will they think? I know it's not very original, is it? You see, they has a sway in our life. The question that I would say is, should they have a sway in our life? Now, they is not always bad. That's why it's a challenging thing to answer. It's like, is it good that I care about how the church will think if I behave a certain way? Like some of you are wanting to run around and dance in the middle of worship, right? And, you know, come up to the front and do some leaps. And you're like, well, what will they think? And it's not a bad thought to have that maybe you could be distracting they uh, in a situation like that. In other words, they is not always a bad character. It's just that it can 
have an unhealthy position of control in our life that can hinder us from doing that which is right. So here's our big Greek word. I have actually have two big Greek words for you today that are both really fun to say. Anthroparoskos. Isn't that a fun word? Anthroparoskos. And this is what it means. Studying to please man. Courting the favor of men. Isn't that just a, a great description? Studying. Not just attempting to appease, but studying and figuring out what would most satisfy those around you. It's not all bad. I mean, studying to please man, there's nothing actually wrong with having everyone around you be like, thank you, that, that really blessed me. That's part of what we do as believers. However, this is something that can easily disturb us. A men pleaser is not a positive statement in scripture because that means they're no longer a God pleaser. You have to choose which pleasing you are going to make your capital pleasing in your life. So Paul is saying in Ephesians 6, 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, anthropotoskos, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So we're not supposed to be man pleasers as a definitive statement about our soul. That isn't what we go out and wake up in the morning to please men. We wake up in the morning to please God. Galatians 1, 10 through 11, do I seek Anthropotoskos. Do I seek to please men? Am I studying to make sure everyone likes me? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, Paul is making it very clear that to be a bondservant of Christ means you have to relinquish pleasing men. You cannot be both and. And that's what Paul is saying there. A bondservant, by the way, just to remember how the Old Testament sets up this understanding is someone is a slave that is set free by his master. And then out of love is going to return to his master and he's going to have a symbol, an outward symbol of yieldedness and submission to him. And that is that his right ear is going to be pierced with an awl against a doorpost. And so Paul is going to use this same imagery to say, I have become a bondservant of Christ. When I chose to return to Christ, when I said, you have me, I am yours for life. I gave him my ear, and whatever he says, I will do, even if it offends men. I am a bondservant of Christ, which means I do not have an ear for men. I have an ear for God. Theos paraskos. Okay, I'm just going to say it again, because that is one of the most enjoyable Greek words to say. In fact, that could be a good name. So one of you needs to name your child Theos paraskos. You could just call him Theos uh, if you want. No, that means God. Maybe not. Uh, We'll come up with a different way of saying it, right? But theos paraskos. Isn't that a, just a great flow? You need to use it in a song, a poem, somewhere. Theos paraskos. Choosing to please God over man. Considering obedience to God the primary virtue. You have an ear for your master. You have an ear for God. Hark, I hear God speaking. But, uh, but they aren't going to like it. I heard God speaking. You see, we have an ear for our master first. Whatever his word says, even if it violates the systems of man, we say yes to it. Theos paraskos. The consequences of this, I get, guys. I understand what I'm saying. I'm not ignorant of the fact that to go against the grain of a culture 
has consequences. It could have financial consequences. It could have relational consequences. It could have life consequences. Many men and women throughout history have given up their life because they, were, they had anthroparaskos. No, 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 no. They had theosparaskos. Boy, I need to get my Greek uh, words correct. Some of you were like, oh, what? I didn't understand the difference. Anthroparaskos, we are not supposed to have, so I need to correct that. Theosparaskos, boy, th- these are huge words. That's what we have. And when we have that, it can lead even to our death. Because this world doesn't appreciate it. Acts 4, 18 through 20. So they, isn't that a great word for them? They. So they, the rulers, rulers, elders, and scribes, called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. A bondservant has an ear. And how are they supposed to use that ear? To listen to the rulers, elders, and scribes? Or God? It doesn't mean they shouldn't listen to the rulers, elders, and scribes. But what if they differ? You always go with God. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot speak. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to have theosparaskos, to make sure we have an ear for our Lord, to make sure that we're ready at an instant for whatever he asks of us. All right, guys, we're going to do a little uh, table turn on this whole they concept, you know, because I've been making it sound like the sway of they is a terrible thing. What if we capitalize the T in they and make that they the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? What if we turn the tables on this whole concept and we imagine that there's a sway of they, but the they isn't the systems of this earth and the cultural climate of this earth, but it's actually our God. You see, that is something that is supposed to control us. So I'm going to call this the heavenly they, the 66, or 66 books in the Bible, that always have something to say on the matter, a study in the power of biblical persuasion. So God has made his opinion, his direction, His will known to us. He has revealed himself to us and he's placed it in his word. He has shown forth that word in and through his son as well. And he has modeled something that is an example for us that we also should follow. And that is a heavenly they. So let's look at these same classic quotes about they. But instead of thinking about the systems of this earth, let's think about God. Let's think about his word. Let's think about his Holy Spirit. Let's think about the ways in which he leads us, his voice. But what would they say? Because this is actually, just like I said, every politician is thinking that at every turn. What is the populace going to say? What is the party going to say? That's all they ever think about. What does a Christian always think about? Don't think about political parties whether the Democratic or Republican convention would agree, who cares? What does God say is the whole key for us. What 
would they say? So where do we go? We go to they, and we say, uh, they, I really need to know what you say about this, because we vote in agreement with our heavenly they, but they won't like it. Well, if they, speaking of God Almighty, isn't going to like it, well, guess what? That should tell you something right there. You shouldn't do it, but they won't approve, but they will never go for this. You see, to go against your heavenly they is a very dangerous proposition. To agree with your heavenly they is wisdom. It is our chief counsel. It is everything that will guide us, protect us, lead us unto life. John 12, 43, for they, the Pharisees, loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I think all of us are disturbed by the Pharisees in the Old Testament. Did I just say that? Boy, I've had some funny statements today. Uh, we're disturbed by the Pharisees in the New Testament, ironically, uh, and, and their example of how they responded to Christ. Because it seems so obvious. Christ is, I mean, that's the one we love, right? And they were going to crucify him under the banner of religious zeal. You see, we can, when we are controlled by the they of this earth, we end up crucifying Jesus. We don't intend to. I'm sure the Pharisees, that wasn't their great gain is to crucify the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah, but the Messiah didn't come in the package that they approved of. For us, Christianity doesn't come to us in the package we approve of. If we were to all submit a package for God, it's like, okay, God, here's how I think Christianity should be lived out in our generation. I should be able to be popular, be healthy, and be wealthy. And then I go to heaven and everyone's happy. You're applauding me as I arrive. I mean, that's just a great model. Why doesn't God adopt that into his package? You see, just as the Pharisees didn't receive the Messiah, we oftentimes don't receive the method or the manner or the way of the Messiah in our life. We don't approve. No, 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 no. This isn't the way I think it should go. What, what do you mean I need to have the whole world against me? I, I don't want that. You see, we, just like the Pharisees, have to humble ourselves and we have to receive the Messiah with all of the package intact and not just to take his saving power, but the fact that he wants to sanctify, change, transform, and wholly metamorphosize our life to look like his. He is in the business of changing us. But we, to do that, we have to agree with him and we have to listen to a heavenly they. He knows what he's doing. So, John 12, 43, for they, the Pharisees, love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Let's contrast that with Christian history 101. For they, the true Christians, love the praise of, men, praise of God more than the praise of men. Rightly handling the earthly they. Now, it's hard because my font for this is all caps. So, but I don't want you to think I'm talking about that capital T, they. This is the earthly they. That's why I made that T look so funny on the screen. That's a lowercase t sort of in, in my way. How do we handle our they in this life? Because like I said, it doesn't mean our they is bad. I mean, I'm a they, if you want to say it that way, to my kids. I'm a they to you. I'm a they to every Ellerslie student that comes through. It's like, what would they say? And, you know, it's not a bad thing to consider. In fact, that's part of the wisdom in life. However... The problem comes in is, is if they gets off. 
if they isn't in agreement with the scriptures and you are submitting to the scriptures first, you have to test every they statement against something, and that is the scriptures. So if they gets off, ah, that makes it a little dicey, doesn't it? So to submit to the heavenly they, capital T, they, doesn't mean that you show disrespect to your earthly they, lowercase t. So here's a German word uh, that some of you may recognize, depending on your background, the Ordnung. Simply translates as order, but a lot of times it's the Anabaptists that have this, uh, this term. And it's odd because they sometimes don't even talk about it. It's not like something you ever mention, but there's an unspoken order to things. And it's sort of like we have uh, grammar rules and you know, there's a certain way that you should speak. There's a, uh, a certain way that you should write. You know, that, that needs an apostrophe right there. This needs uh, correct, uh, you know, a comma and then correct punctuation at the end. There's rules of grammar, an order of grammar. In certain cultures, well, I could say every culture, which is not every culture uses this word, but in every culture, there's an ordnung. There's an order to things that is approved of by the society. And it's oftentimes unspoken. In other words, it's inferred. And everyone that's in the culture knows the ordnung, even though the ordnung has never been spoken out loud. How does that work? But that's the way it works in every culture. We have an ordnung. And we have an order to things, and you never want to violate that, guys. That leads to something known as excommunication, removal from the synagogue. And so you want to keep it. Jesus is going to come into the culture, and he is going to violate the ordnung of the day. Uh, Jesus, I mean, you're our example. <laughs> Excuse me, but what are you doing here? The apostles are going to violate the ordnung of their day. However, there are certain things they're not going to violate. They're not just spitting in the face of Judaism. Jesus is actually fulfilling all of the shadow of Judaism and saying, look, it all points to me. But there are certain things that are going to make their way into Judaism that are very opposite of who Christ is. So it's not something that came out of the word of God. It came out of tradition. So the ordnung, the moral social grammar of the group. Respecting the ordnung, the heavenly rule of thumb. As long as I am not pitted against the word of God or asked to disobey the clear word of God, I will submit, prove orderly, respectful, and honorable. So this is just how I would encourage all of you to live. We live in a culture, and it does have certain order to it. It has certain things, you know, like there are driving rules. And I would encourage you to live according to the driving rules. I would encourage you to live according to the civil uh, injunctions, the civil statements that are, that are how you build and how you, like, I would really like to put a parking lot out here. But to do that, you know, we have to, uh, we have to get a site plan done on this northern lot, uh, which now I have to coordinate with his little feet uh, for that to happen. And then I, we have to get some engineering done. Yeah, submit to that. That's still the wisdom thing to do, even though you're like, oh, onerous. I mean, this is ridiculous. We live in a culture that has they, and they have opinions about things, and we should submit to the degree that it doesn't violate our conscience or that it's not asking us to do something that goes against the scriptures. Those are hard things. You know, like paying taxes falls into this crazy category too. These are hard things for some of us to work through, but as a heavenly rule of thumb, as long as I'm not pitted against the word of God or asked to disobey the clear word of God, I will submit to my they and prove orderly, respectful, and honorable. 
Luke 2, 51. This is such an extraordinary statement, speaking of Jesus. Then he went down with them, speaking about his parents, he's with Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. So remember, Jesus is going to stay behind and he's going to be uh, found in the temple uh, teaching. And there, you know, Mary's a little uh, disturbed by all of this. But he is going to return to Nazareth and subject himself to his parents. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're talking about God Almighty here? God Almighty in human skin, how is he going to behave? He's going to submit himself to his they. Now, his they, in this case, are not going to ask him to violate what he is called to do with his life, but he is growing up as a young man, and in so doing, he's going to subject himself even though he's Jesus. Romans 13, 1 through 2, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. It's sort of like they. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that are, exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. There's the, our word for uh, ordnung or order of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Of course, tense scripture. And you, you guys remember uh, COVID when this scripture got brought up. You know, it's usually this one was typically brought up by the people you didn't agree with, uh, too. They're like, you should be submitting. Yeah, but what if they're asking me to do something that goes against my conscience? That's a completely different issue, which is why I brought that up. But these are some of that, this is that dynamic, those sparks that start flying. But long and short, that's what it says in Scripture. And you don't want to skate around that. Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. There's our ordinung. Whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. What an interesting statements from Peter to make for us. That's the system that we are in. We still show honor and respect towards it. We don't spit on it just because we're Christians. Actually, we live out our Christianity under whatever system we're in, because I guarantee you there's a lot of different options for what that could look like. We have a constitutional government. We don't have a king. So many of us as Christians are like, well, I don't need to obey that then. You obey it in whatever form it is, whatever the they is in your life, whatever that system is, to the degree that you can live at peace with all men, you should. And you should submit. If they're asking you to violate the word of God, you cannot. So there's a statement all the way through the Old Testament. We'll see it, Deuteronomy 17, 12. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So shall you put away the evil from Israel. So a priest is a God assignment. Now we're going to see throughout the Old Testament into the new that, that priests and the priesthood can go corrupt. So in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit is going to come down, you're going to have Peter and John. They're going to be in a situation where they're with this same priest. And this priest is telling them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And technically, according to the word of God, they should heed that man. And yet, what if God is asking them to speak? 
What do they do? This is a bind, isn't it? When your they goes opposite of the word of God, now what do we do? Because we're supposed to submit, we're supposed to show honor, but what if they are asking you to do something that violates the clear word of God in your life? Acts 5, 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see, God is the highest authority and we never nullify God by obeying a lower authority. God always trumps in every situation. He's the trump card. Whatever he says goes. And that's what it means to have theos paraskos, to please God over anthroparaskos, to please men. To please God means that you are willing to violate the systems of this world to follow your God. There is a time to disobey the heavenly rule of thumb. So I, the other one was basically showing that, that our goal is to obey. In every situation, it's to submit. But there's also a time to disobey. And here's our heavenly rule of thumb. If the choice is between obeying God or obeying man, God must be obeyed. Even though such obedience would be construed as unsubmissive, disorderly, disrespectful towards the ordnung. And even though such obedience may lead to external punishments and sufferings. The proper response to the improper request. So if you get a request that asks you to do something that you cannot in good conscience before the word of God, do. What's our response as believers? What is the proper response to an improper request? Though you cannot obey the request, your bearing in disobeying is still the bearing of Jesus Christ. Your disobedience to the unhealthy ordnung in your disobedience to the unhealthy ordnung, you still must maintain love, respect, gentleness, humility, and honor in your behavior and action. Just because someone is demanding your soul into compromise does not mean you should compromise the attitude and bearing of Christ that you carry. You must refuse them with a nobility of soul intact, with love and forgiveness in your tone, and with gentleness and honor in your manner. Everything we do shows Jesus. So even when we're asked to do something that we cannot do, we still respond with respect and with honor, even though we cannot do it. So I'm just going to finish with this, just a final story. And some of you have heard me share this story in the past. I think it was a, China, a Romanian pastor. It could have been Chinese. I, and I know there's a big difference between the two. It was a story told by Richard Wormbrandt, which is why I default to Romanian, but and I've always told it as a Romanian story, but it's still, there's a check in my, in my memory of whether that's true or not. And, but I think it is. So this Romanian pastor's in prison. The KGB officer that arrested him to punish him, since he fell into bad graces with the communists, was thrown into the same prison. So could you imagine putting these two together? And so uh, the, the challenge for the, this KGB officer, who didn't like Christ, hated Christ, was that now he was with all these pastors that he had thrown into prison. And that was his torture. Uh, and well, one pastor sort of adopted this man and had a special burden for him and followed him around all day long and was talking to him about Jesus. Incessantly, would not stop. And finally, one day, this pastor was so frustrated and so fed up with this 
did I, did I say the pastor? But my, my, something's off in my, my, uh, my word choice today. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. I think we're at about 10 situations. This KGB officer, ex-KGB officer, was so fed up with this pastor and him hounding him about Jesus constantly that he finally blew his stack and said something like, you know, enough, enough. I don't want to hear another word about Jesus. I'll give you one sentence. You tell me in one sentence whatever you want to about Jesus, and then I never want to hear his name again. So I've always pondered that. It's like, what would I have said if I had one sentence to share about Jesus? Could you imagine you making a really long uh, sentence without any uh, punctuation? No, this is still a run-on. This is just a long run-on sentence. It goes on for a couple hours. I mean, how would you do that? One sentence, and this is what he said. He's like me. And the man melted and yielded his life to Jesus. Now, I've pondered that, of course, many times, you know, because I've used this story many times, and it's just such a confounding story to me because it's the least likely thing I would ever think of saying. I, because it sounds like I would be boasting if I said that. He's like me. I mean, it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't translate well in my understanding, but it's so profound to think that is ultimately what will win the day. That the they, who doesn't want us to be sharing the truth, if we share it in the manner in which Jesus shares it, we have power to win them. You see, even though it looks like our they is rejecting us at first, that's also our target. They're the very ones we're wanting to see come to Christ, but they are not going to come in and through our compromise. They're going to come in and through our stance, our unwillingness to yield, our unwillingness to bend. That they can be won, but not by listening to they and allowing that they to control us in the, in the wrong sense. But when we allow theos paraskos, God-pleasing to rule us, then that is our secret weapon to winning the lowercase t, they, in our life. Father, I ask that you would freshly show us where we are leaning towards men-pleasing. And if this is in our life at any level, I pray that you would not just touch it, but remove it, that we would yield this to you, that you would cultivate that deep, God-pleasing desire inside of us, that you would foster it by your Holy Spirit, that we would not remain as we are, Lord, we desire you. We desire you to be seen. We need boldness and courage for this, Lord. We recognize that. We need you and your power to make this even possible. So we ask for that in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.